raindrops will bow down And every chain will break As broken hearts declare His praise Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah He's roaring with power and fighting our battles Every knee will bow before Him Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain For the sin of the world, His blood breaks the chains Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb Every knee will bow before Him The King of Kings. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every people bow before the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world, His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb, every knee will bow before Him. chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And therefore I tell you, if you see the word therefore, you know what question you ask? What is, what is it therefore? There you go, some people know this up. What is therefore, therefore? Therefore I will tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They're coming soon enough. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. It is alive, it is active. Your spirit has breathed it into existence through its authors, and we are thankful for it. And Lord, this morning, I pray that we would have willing hearts, that our hearts would be likened to a a field that is primed and ready to be cultivated with your seeds planted so that your word may sprout in our lives. Lord, we invite you into our hearts this morning to do that work. So Lord, break us down this morning. Help us to be honest about things. Bring us encouragement, Lord, direction in light of your scriptures that we may be strengthened in you within a world that so badly needs just flourishing Christians full of your spirit, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has come, who is just bearing loads of anxieties or, or emotional burdens or just the weights that come just from living in this broken world in our lives. 
Lord, I pray this morning that we could cast those onto you, that if sin is present in our life, that we could even this morning repent of those things and turn from them and grab a brother or a sister and confess and find once again the grace that is needed in our lives from you, grace unbounding that is um, not able to be measured. For those that are sick, which right now there are many in our body, Lord, um, bring healing, Lord, sustain those, Lord. Um, so Jesus, this morning I pray that um, you would be with us. May your word pierce as, a, as, a, as the sword that it is into our souls. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So recently, the Scientific American, which is an online um, magazine, it released a study. And maybe you've heard of these kinds of studies before. And it showed that one person in the USA will consume 35 times more resources than one person born in India. One American will on average consume 50 times more than another person who was born in China. The research also shows that our nation, which is only 5% of the world's population, uses one-third of the world's paper. That's probably my house alone. A quarter of the world's oil, 23% of the coal, 27% of the aluminum, 19% of the copper, of the copper. We also create half the world's solid waste, our nation alone. I say all of that, and there's other statistics, a couple more, right? That one billion people, more than one billion people in the world live less than one dollar a day. Three billion live on less than two dollars per day. Even in our own nation, between 12 and 20% of Americans live beneath what we call our poverty line here in our nation. There's more statistics, but you get the picture. So when I say that stuff, there's really two ways I can preach this sermon. I could just make you feel guilty for being here, right? How dare you waste all that stuff, right? And just swing that guilty hammer and just beat you down with it, right? Make you just, uh, you know, tell you your heart's in the wrong place and you, you need the anxiety and you get to repent and sell all your stuff and, and all of that, right? Some people have, you know, in church history have read scriptures like this and, and really actually did that, right? They're like, you know what? I'm gonna, I am gonna, I'm gonna get rid of all of my stuff, you ever heard of St. Francis of Assisi, right? He's a pretty famous guy in church history. He literally did that. He just got rid of everything. He had a lot of money and just sold everything and lived this crazy radical life that I think he was a part of a kind of a crazy guy. But his story remains as a really interesting story in church history of his ministry to the poor. But if I told you all that you need to do that, that you must do that, I would be asking you, to embrace what I can call a, um, a, a poverty theology, almost as if being poor is better than not being poor. And some teachers talk like that. Some Christian people today that write books and such, they, they talk about as, as if, you know, being in poverty is a greater state than not being in, party in, term, in poverty in terms of what is valuable to Jesus, right? People talk like that. Um, I want to be clear, though, right? Sometimes Jesus may tell you to do that, right? I don't understand that as being a law, but there were some people, even in the Gospels, that Jesus said, you know what your problem is? Is your stuff, and you need to consider leaving it behind and then following me. Some people need to hear that and to take action, 
right? Um, and, it, and it's another thing to point out here that as we talk about Jesus, um, he didn't need to take a vow of poverty because Jesus himself, he was just in poverty. One commentator writes about the world Jesus lived in in his own life. He said, Jesus lived in the world that was very hot and mostly dry. If he ate food that day, it was probably because it was caught that day, right? There was no refrigerator storing up food for the week. The house he grew up in was more than likely would, would have been made of black basalt, which is really a dark stone that was intended to kind of keep his house cool in the hot summer months, but um, not extremely cozy and comfortable. If people were overheated where Jesus lived, there's no flipping on the air conditioning or anything of that sort, she would have to jump into the Sea of Galilee to cool off. Jesus lived himself on donations from others. He wandered about here or there. He had no home during his ministry. And undoubtedly, there was times even in his life when he was working before his ministry where his meals were small or probably altogether missing. Nevertheless, as the church grew, it didn't just grow by those who were in such poverty. But we saw men and women from all classes in the Roman Empire began following him. We think of Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus, who was described as a wealthy man. We see Lydia in the book of Acts, who I named my daughter after. The, the very first Christian in Europe was a seller of purple goods. And history shows if you were selling that kind of royal colors, you, you were, she was independently wealthy, which for a woman in that day was unheard of. And she was the first person in Europe to respond to Jesus. Christianity is not just for the poor, but also for the rich. It is for everyone in the middle or in between. So I won't preach a theology of poverty as if to follow Jesus means you must, you know, get rid of all of your stuff. Jesus, as we've seen throughout this entire sermon, is really aimed at your heart. He is doing this heart surgery, this elongated heart surgery, continually just hammering into the depths of your motivations, the depths of your intentions, as he wants you to have a united heart in him, a whole heart that is not devoted to this thing and that thing, and then add a little Jesus but no devoted to him in its entirety. It is easy to manufacture guilt and to make you feel bad and then to make you do something because you feel guilty while your heart remains unchanged. Guilt is very easy to manufacture. I don't want to do that this morning. I don't think Jesus is doing that. He's aiming at your heart. And once again, this sermon is not aimed at those who have abundance or those who don't have abundance. Um, the reality is you can be here and not have much at all, and still have money as the center of your heart's treasure. You can be poor and still be worshiping money. And you can be wealthy and not be worshiping money. Because the issue here is the heart. It's the love of money that's the problem, not money itself. And that must be said. So the roadmap for today's sermon will be concerned with first, doing some self-searching with what, your, what truly is your treasure in life. And then identifying um, different habits that, are, um, reflective, that can be reflective of the state of your heart that you may have developed in your life. Uh, what Jesus refers to as the eye, we'll see in a minute. And number three, uh, letting Jesus confront you this morning to face any kind of inner anxiety that may be driving you to be obsessed or to be longing a little too much after money and earthly 
treasures, to have Jesus confront that anxiety within you through his love and through the good news of the gospel. As we prayed earlier, the scriptures are a sword and it pierces the soul, the sword that it digs into our inner longings with what you treasure within. For when Jesus changes your heart through his spirit, that is where true and real and lasting change takes place in our life. And so let's dig in here in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So Jesus begins this section by comparing two places, a temporal place and a permanent place. And he asks, are you living as if the temporal place is the permanent place? Or do you treasure the permanent place, the heavenly place, so much that your life's treasure belongs there, even though you're living in the temporal place? Every year at Christmas, I'm reminded of this conversation. Um, because even though, you know, we know that inflation takes place and such, but some things aren't really touched by inflation. It seems to be toys are a part of that. Toys are just still cheap as they were when I was a kid. And uh, my children, every Christmas, some of them always ask for lightsabers. And every year I, I tell my wife, I'm like, no, because they literally break in like 24 hours. And no, we're not going to do it. And then we do it every year. So this year, they asked for lightsabers, and we got them, two of them. We hit a record. Within like 36 hours, both were just smashed to oblivion. We're like, of course, right? This is what we do, right? This stuff is, is cheap, and it's temporal, and it's smashed to oblivion. I don't know if it's my kid's fault or the toy's fault, probably a mixture in between. But that's what happens in our family, right, with this stuff. But Jesus, what he's calling us to is to try to identify those things that are temporal, that don't last, that don't survive in light of heaven. He is calling us to set our minds on um, uh, what is to come, on the age that is to come, the, the kingdom of heaven, not just the place we will be upon death, but the day when he returns to make all things new. We are to live in light of that future eternal place. Treasuring things on this earth is like treasuring those toy lightsabers that you just know they're not going to deliver, right? That kind of trust is it's dangerous business for you will end up with broken treasure very quickly that will not deliver what you were looking for. And it's kind of a cheesy statement, but you know what? It's true. Um, it's very a vivid kind of picture, right? When you were buried in the ground, there is no U-Haul truck attached to your coffin, right? You are not carrying that stuff with you. I was just in Georgia this week um, for a funeral, a brief visit. And we've all been to funerals, and we all know that when you and I are buried, that we, there's, there's nothing we're carrying with us. You're alone, just as you, were, you came into this world is a way that you leave this world. Yet surely often, we live as if that is not true. Now, what does it look like to live here on earth, even in the land of abundance, where even the poor among us still have so much more than the vast majority of this world? What does it look like to live here, to have our heart's treasure set on the heavenly places? To treasure heavenly things is to treasure 
whatever we can find here that can also be found in heaven. So remember that line in the Lord's Prayer we heard last week? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are those things that are found in heaven that are found even here? That that can give us a glimpse of heaven on earth today. Well, Paul mentions really one thing that outlasts everything on earth. Love never ends, says Paul. As for prophecies, they pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But he says love never ends. And if you read the context of 1 Corinthians 13, he is talking about our interactions and relationships within the church to one another and the things that we focus on concerning our relationships to one another and how we minister to one another, how we care for one another. People, you and I, if you know Christ, you will be found in those heavenly places. You will also be there, Jesus said. I'm going to prepare rooms for you. You will also be there. My love that I'm dishing out towards you now, I will be able, when we're both in heaven, to do the same thing, right? If you join me in heaven, love can also be found in heaven. My, 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 my friendship, my relationship to you and to our Lord can also be found in heaven. There's certain things that we can cultivate now that are also found in heaven and in the age to come that can help ensure that I am majoring all my heart's affections towards the things that truly matter even past this life. Jesus came to die for people right? His love is directed towards people. The things of his kingdom is God and others. People are far far more important than stuff. This is why love directed at people the way that God's love has been directed toward us is one of the first places in which we can realign our heart's treasure to the things God treasures. I mean, do you see how this works? So now Jesus, as we talk about this, like how do we ensure that our heart is, 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 is loving the things of heaven even now? How can we make sure that we are not lost in loving temporal things? There's a, a question that might arise that says, all right, so yeah, I, I, I see this. I can be in love with my stuff that I know will just rot and wither away and the moss will eat it away. But is there some kind of like a, a direction for defense here? Like how can I build up some kind of walls of defense to say, you know, how can I guard my heart towards loving the wrong thing? I think Jesus kind of anticipates the question and goes on in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. So, Read this carefully, and I guarantee you're going to be confused, all right? The eye is the lamp of the body. Does your eye really give out light, right? I won't go into it all, but commentators agree that there was some, some ancient stuff going on that has been lost to modern-day, you know, audiences today. The ancient people considered as sort of a, either a metaphor or maybe some people thought literally, but it was used as almost like a euphemism, like a saying, like a phrase, right? That there was some sort of light from within that your eyes reflected, right? That the light that is brought into the eyes from what we are looking at um, is, is, is more than probably just, you know, it's probably some kind of metaphor, right, for, um, for how people perceive that our face and our eyes were uh, an expression of what's happening in here in our hearts. And so Jesus picks up the idea 
And in essence, what we can say is that at minimum, what he's trying to say is our eyes are a window to our soul because he doesn't just talk about what comes out, but also about what is coming in. And I discovered here that Jesus, who, who, who drops the puns all the time? Are there any punsters in this room? Yeah, I, I'm not a pun guy. I never can think of it. I have friends that just, I literally think, just sit and think of puns all day long. Um, Jesus makes a pun here. So congratulations if you make puns and you have a friend here. It, the, 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 the Greek word here for, um, for healthy and bad, okay, two different words, the, is haplos for healthy and poneros for bad. Okay, and they kind of rhyme a little bit. They play on each other. And the idea here is those words elsewhere in Scripture, I don't know why they translate it healthy and bad. It's kind of a traditional translation, but everywhere else it's translated in Deuteronomy 15, for example, um, either for generous or stingy, which keeps in line here with what we're talking about, right? With treasure, with money, right? It makes sense. So he's saying at minimum, he says, if, if, if you are whole in here, if the light that's inside of you and your soul is treasuring the things of heaven, your eyes will indicate what that light is of what you cast your gaze onto. When we want something, it's our eyes that normally are the first things that go toward it. You don't usually see something you don't want and stare at it saying, I just don't want that. I'm going to stare at it and look at it and I just don't want that. No, like it's usually something you look at and say, I really want that. And your eyes are stuck there, right? And Deuteronomy 15.9 speaks of the other side of having what, what is called with the same word in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. They call it an evil eye when you look at somebody who was needy and you say, nah, and, and Deuteronomy 15 uses the same word there and it says, don't look at them with an evil eye and choose not to be generous towards the needy, right? Again, he's pointing what's inside of you. Are you generous at heart? Or is your eyes cast out as stinginess that you look away when someone's in need and you choose to cling to your own stuff? And he says that darkness, if that darkness is in you, it's going to have an accumulative effect and keep getting darker and keep getting darker. And he moves on because that darkness will ultimately expose where your worship lies, right? The very next verses, he says, no one can serve two masters for he will hate the other one and he will love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Any fellow Bob Dylan fan has that song stuck in your head? Right? I'll, I'll read some of the lyrics to Bob Dylan's famous song. He says, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble or dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you will have to serve somebody. Now, again, I get the guilt hammer out and say, stop worshiping your money. You're worshiping the devil. You can't do that. You got to serve God and just start smacking you down, right? Um, but how do we read that, right? What does it mean to not serve two masters? Again, the extreme, get rid of your stuff. You can't have, I don't think Jesus is actually directly saying that for everyone. 
I think the idea here is that you are just unattached to your things, that you may have your possessions, but you are not serving your possessions, that your possessions and what you have are ways to serve the Lord and the others, that you aren't stuck in serving your own possessions, that they don't have lordship over you. An example of this is, I think, generosity. Where generosity is found, you see a heart that says, this stuff is great, but it, you know, it doesn't have me. It doesn't own me. My, my stuff and my, my money doesn't have chains around my own wrist that just drags me along in worship of it, right? That I actually have control of my own possessions, and I'm generous with them. Martin Luther King Jr., um, he received the Nobel Peace Prize, 1964. By age 35, he had accomplished quite a bit in the civil rights movement, um, advocating for nonviolent disobedience to laws of segregation. He had already earned his doctorate in theology, successfully organized the Montgomery, Montgomery bus boycott, led the march on Washington, delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, which led to desegregation. Laws were changed. An amazing accomplishment by this man of only 35 years old. Given the Nobel Peace Prize, he was awarded $54,000 due for inflation. That would be close to half a million today in today's money. You know what he did with that money? Gave it all away. Back to the cause of the civil rights movement. I mean, he still had other money, right? He wasn't poor by any means, but he chose the path of generosity and simplicity Right? And that's what he decided in that moment. His generosity, generosity marked his posture towards money. Paul, I think, when he was writing this, we're going to read in 1 Timothy 6, he probably had some of these verses in mind. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. That's what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, which I want to we'll get, once again emphasize, the poorest in our nation are usually more richer than the vast majority of the world. Okay? And so this is probably some way even talking about everyone in this room right now. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to, to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see what's on Paul's mind here. So, mind you, he didn't say this. As for the rich in this present age, sell everything you have. No, he went straight to the heart. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes. Those are like motivations. Those are intentions. That's the stuff on the inside. He says that stuff can't be aimed at your belongings and your possessions. They have to be aimed at God and God alone, thus freeing you up from enslavery to all those things. And to say now you can be generous and not have anxiety about things. And now you can help other people. And now you can go and, and, and cultivate heavenly treasure with the blessings that God has given you so that you may experience a glimpse of what is truly life, the heavenly life here on earth. That was my paraphrase. Generosity is a sign that you are not devoted to your stuff. Money and treasure is by nature greedy because ultimately, how much is enough? When does someone make so much money and say like, oh, I'm good, right? I live in a house. This is, this is the trajectory of our American you know, reality here. I live in a house that was built in the late 30s. All right, it's a good size house, but one thing that is not good size in my house is closets, 
I think that the people who lived in my house owned like a shirt or two, maybe, right? I mean, my closet is so skinny that a, a, a hanger doesn't even sit that way. We, everything's like tilted and like shoved in there. And all of our closets and all of our house are just absolutely, if you crack the door, you like, you know, stuff will fall on your face. But our former house in Jersey, which was built less than 20 years ago, we had walk-in closets, we had pantries, all their closets and the other bedrooms were twice the size of our closets now. We had attic storage, we had a linen closet, nothing that this house from the 30s actually has. And you, you look at that and you think, all right, so past ages just had less, right? And but we, as we continue on in our American world, we just, we don't realize that we just have so much more than past generations, but it's all that we know today. It's just what we think is normal, right? The standard always continues to go up in America. And I'm not demonizing these things. These things are blessings, but the whole goal here is to say, be aware of this, that your heart isn't caught up in these things, that you begin living for those things. You can't serve God and money. If we are divided in here, if our hearts are divided in this area, we may want to serve God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we may find ourselves in a state of anxiety concerning our stuff, concerning what we have or what we don't have, or even sometimes the anxiety of organizing all the stuff we do have. My wife is a master at throwing stuff away for that very purpose. Anxiety is a proof of a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God, especially in the area of wealth, treasure, and money. Anxiety is proof of a divided heart. And I want to stretch out the definition of anxiety here in a minute to include not just money and wealth, but yourself, your body, your, your, your health, your state of being, as Jesus does here in the next passage. Anxiety is proof that your allegiance is divided, that you have Perhaps you want to entrust everything over to the sovereignty of God in this area to say, you know what, you're right. This stuff ultimately can't save me. It can't ultimately bring me joy or contentment. My tomorrow, you know, with my food and my clothing, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I have those things. I'm not going to lie. Maybe I have some anxiety. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's, you know, uh, economies, things to be, I don't know, is it going to be okay. We don't really know. Is my job secure? We start having all these worries in our life, and Jesus kind of anticipates this. He says, look, let's talk about anxiety here as we close out this section concerning our stuff. In verse 25, he says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, I want you guys to listen to this. Let the word just, just speak to you. I'm going to read this slowly. Just pay attention. If, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, this temporal stuff, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Did Jesus die for the grass in the field? <laughs> right? No. 
Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I included so much text here because the word therefore exists, and it connects to all the preceding verses we've been looking at. And, you know, this, a lot of this is, it speaks for itself, this passage, right? We, yeah, we could walk through verse by verse three here, but you, you see what he is saying. You are so much more valuable than the things of this earth that the birds and the grass and the flowers, they bloom and they come and they don't need our help. And God is, is enabling these birds to have food and these flowers. He's like, if I'm doing that out there, don't you think I'm going to be there for you here? the people that I created in my own image? I asked myself, I said, you know, how do we tackle this anxiety, anxiety that can drive us to those longer work hours or to aim for that promotion when you know that promotion will just add another layer of complexity in your family's life that could just really break them. But hey, it's that larger check and what's more valuable? Right when, when we're faced with this anxiety, it says we need more. We, we need more. I, I, I got to do this. I got to work these longer hours. I have this. I need this. I need this. And we have this, this stirring anxiety. How do we face that? I think that this is one way that God does this. And perhaps you've had this happen in your life. Okay. It happens in our national life. Like a national crisis hits. Right. And suddenly our comfortable existence, there's a big question mark that says, Wow, tomorrow actually isn't certain. What happened after 9-11, right? When we saw the terror of what happened, churches were filled to the brim all over the country because we realized there's an element that we don't have control over after all, right? We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't have control. Nobody knew that planes were going to do with. We didn't know. We had no control over that. So people longed for hope. And so they ran to the church but soon after, the churches were back to where they were. I think God likes to, to bring us to the edge of his precipice here. He says, I want you to get this. I want to allow you to face something extremely difficult, something extremely hard. And you're going to be faced with a choice. And you're going to say, am I really the one in control of my life? Or is God the one in control here? Can I actually fix this by more X, Y, Z or by doing more of this or worrying about this? Will I try to attempt to do that? Or am I going to surrender myself and say, actually, God, I am not in control. I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I need to release this into your hands and rest from my anxiety. There's a story that really um, penetrates the heart, you know, because anybody with kids, you could imagine what this guy was going through. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 that displays this, this, this brink that I'm talking about, right? Being brought to that precipice of saying, I, I've actually, I can't, I, I, there's no other hope to be found. I've I tried this and tried that, and Lord, there's, there's nothing left. I need you. There's a story after Jesus finishes with a the you know, insane event of the transfiguration where he, he comes down the mountain where the remainder of his disciples were. And when he walks down, he sees a crowd and there's a little stirring happening, right? And when he gets down, he sees some people arguing. 
down there as the crowd is kind of going about. And it's his disciples arguing. It's like, what are you guys, what are you arguing about? And they say, teacher, uh, somebody brought uh, someone here that has a son. And he's, he's filled with a spirit that brings, his, that brings seizures and convulsions. And he's, he foams at the mouth and his teeth become rigid. And I asked your disciples and to, to release this demon from him. And they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. He says, how much, how much should I be here with you? How can I bear you anymore? A little <laughs> glimpse of Jesus' irritation there. He says, bring him to me. They bring him the boy. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 20. The spirit saw Jesus immediately convulse the boy. He falls to the ground. He's rolling about. He's foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And this one, the father, he responds. He says, immediately the father, the child, the child cries out. And some manuscripts say, even say with tears. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see his anxiety that's stirring right there? He says, Lord, I, I, I want to believe. I'm not going to lie. I got some mad anxiety about this. And I'm lacking faith right now. I am being brought to this precipice to say, I can't fix this, Lord. I want to but I can't. I believe, but can you please rest me for my anxiety and help my unbelief? And of course, as the story goes, Jesus heals the boy. The spirit comes out and he takes him by the hand and he lifts him up. And I share that story to say, if you're here this morning and you know that you were just filled with anxiety about life, that you were either just too obsessive over how much or how little is in your account and, and it, you want this or you, you're desiring that and you are overworked or overextended and your family is just kind of a mess because you're just so concerned about having more or experiencing this or doing this that costs all this money or maybe you're just here because you have anxiety about life and there's sickness in your life or there's, there's things that you just, you're, you, you're trying to handle and you, you look at it and you say, you know, I'm doing all that I can, but all I sense is worry. And I'm just worrying constantly. There's no results from this worrying. Jesus is bringing you to a precipice this morning, just like this man here. And the decision that lies before you right now is either one of surrender or one of continuing to bow at the altar of anxiety to think that you can fix these things on your own. As we close this morning... I want to remind you of the gospel. Jesus, though, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 9, we'll close with this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he had all, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Be reminded that God is a self-giving God. Love by nature is self-giving and selfless. And God provided this kind of love by sending his own son to die in our place. And in doing so, living a life of hard poverty and suffering, if only it meant that you and I can now be rich in God. That now we're able to have such rich promises of trust and faith in the sovereignty of God. To see his love and say, surely you are going to sustain and provide for me. 
Or we can decide that we can continually think that us and our stuff and money are things that can finally deliver what we are looking for. So a few questions as we close. Are you carrying that anxiety today? And are you willing to confront it and do something about it? To approach Jesus now and to admit that you cannot, there are certain elements of your life you cannot control, and that your anxiety is just proof that you are lacking in faith to his promises that he will care for you. Number two, does your life reflect a busyness and overworkedness that shows that you do indeed believe that you just need more stuff or more grander experiences for the good life? For your family to flourish all the while your family is exhausted and your marriage is strained and there's irritability towards your kids because you have no spare time, although you're surrounded by nice things. Maybe it's evidence that you're trusting in the wrong things. And number three, has your needs in life, have you allowed your needs in life to drive you to anxiety rather than faith? Can you allow the true needs right now that you have in your life to lead you to the feet of Jesus who promised that if you only seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness, that ye will have all that you need. In light of that, let us pray. Jesus, I pray that these um, uh, words would just be, uh, I pray they're from you, Lord, that um, whether we have much or little, that we could find a, a, a disattachment from them and know that, Lord, ultimately, you are the one that we need. So wherever we are in this struggle, Lord, I pray right now your spirit does his work of speaking words of life to those in this room who need it. That if encouragement can be found, Lord, that someone here is, is really doing well in this area, they've experienced victory from where they used to be, and Lord, praise God for the encouragement that they're on by the help of your spirit, just this, this path of joy and flourishing. And for those who may be finding themselves in the throes of anxiety for things that they need to admit that they just can't handle, that they need to turn over to you, that Lord, you would help them to do so. Empower them to surrender, Lord, before your feet. We love you, Jesus, with all of our heart. We want to, Lord. Please fill us, Lord, with, with faith and trust in your grand promises. We pray this in your name. Amen.